IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and hash out trends. In this episode we're going to delve into two albums that came out today by a couple of legacy acts, The Killers and Bright Eyes. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? There's nothing I love more than to feel as relevant as my 24-year-old self or to have my 24-year-old self feel newly relevant. So I don't think I've looked forward to an episode that we've done more than this one. I am like I am just sitting on 20-plus years worth of knowledge about these bands, and I'm ready to feel cool again. Yeah, you know, I was just going to say that, like, this is definitely a good week for all the middle-aged music critics out there. You know, like, <laughs> you, we have all this wealth of information about, like, aughts-era music that we rarely get to use these days, uh, but now it's going to come in handy. I, you know, I, I was, I mentioned a few times on Twitter, like, referring, I think, to the Killers as a legacy act, and there were some people that were very shocked to hear that and maybe a little mm. uncomfortable. Is it weird for you at all to think of these bands like in those terms well no i mean because when you think about like u2 in 2000 like when uh, all that we can all, all that we can leave behind came out like they'd been around since what like 79 like they're about as old as bright eyes was is right now so i mean or same with like uh green day uh dookie i mean they were you know 2015 uh they were 20 years old so this, I mean, it's strange to call it a legacy act because when Fevers and Mirrors turned 20, uh, like I, I turned 40. And so it like is at the exact midpoint of my life. So the fact that like they've accumulated this massive legacy as artists, but it's just weird for people such as ourselves to like recognize that, um, you know, we're twice as old maybe as we were when we first heard this stuff. Yeah. Like the killers, uh, you know, their first record, Hot Fuss, came out in, what, I think 2004. That means that a baby that was born on the day that album came out is now, you know, ready to get their driver's years license. Old. Yes. So, yeah. you know, yes. It's So if, if you have a problem thinking of these bands as legacy acts, I'm sorry, but time marches on as always. You are getting old. We are all marching toward the grave. So we just need to accept it. <laughs> and, and That's a great and, Bright Eyes lyric, man. <laughs> exactly. So... Let's get to our first album. We're going to be talking about The Killers' album, Imploding the Mirage, which, by the way, is a just a fantastic Killers album title. Uh, yeah, it's not like imploding always sounds like more faux profound than exploding. <laughs> right? And so that's that's really what makes this yes. one hum. Yeah, it's the thinking man's exploding is imploding. <laughs> Has it been confirmed? Because when I heard the title, I, I just thought of it as this sort of hokey metaphor, but... Then I saw someone made this point that like they could be talking about the casino, which hmm. I, I think was demolished. I don't know if that's been confirmed as a reference because when someone said that, I was like, oh, maybe the killers have outsmarted me here. Like I, I, I think of myself as being smarter than the killers, but maybe they're, but maybe they're smarter than me. Anyway, the killers, just to give a little background, this is a band they formed in 2001. As I said before, their debut record, Hot Fuss. Is it Hot Fuss? That's such a it's weird... It's Hot t- Fuss. Hot, hot Fuss. fuss. Hot, it, uh, yeah, Hot Fuzz, I think, was the movie. Right. 
Okay, but when you say hot fuzz, at least when I say it, it always comes out sounding like hot fuzz. So at any rate, yeah, yeah I'm not talking <laughs> about the Edgar Wright film. I'm talking about the Killers record. It comes out in 2004. And of course, that's the album that has Mr. Brightside on it, uh, which is one of the most you know, overplayed Karaoke rock songs. classic. Yes, of, yeah. of, of the early 21st century. Their next record is Sam's Town, which at the time was very critically maligned, but I feel like in retrospect, it's become sort of a trendy choice for people to say is their favorite Killers record. Um, mm-hmm. and I've always enjoyed that record. Essentially, mm-hmm. the Killers were this huge band in the aughts, and then like in the 2010s, like a lot of bands from that era, they, they kind of fell off a cliff, and they put out a series of records that weren't all that well received, including Battleborn and the record Wonderful Wonderful, which came out in 2017. I actually reviewed that record. And in my review, I said that to me, it seemed like the Killers were on their last legs uh, mm-hmm. because like their bassist at the time was backing out of the band. Subsequent to that, the guitar player now is essentially a part-time member of the group. So mm-hmm. we're only talking about two people, Brandon Flowers and the drummer, Ronnie Vanucci, Holding the guy with the awesome beard. Awesome beard, yeah. The, those two guys are holding down this brand, essentially, that is still a very profitable touring operation, you know, when touring presumably <laughs> gets back into play. Uh, but now they have this album, uh, Imploding the Mirage. I, I, before we get to the album, I'm just curious, like, for you, like, what, what, what are your feelings about the Killers generally, and like, what were your expectations going into this album? I mean... Well, I, I think back to when I first came across them in 2004, like I was very much in the scope of what they called glamorous indie rock and roll, um, very much into all the you know cooler indie acts. I was really starting to like, um, you know, start to dive deeper into what like indie and DIY mean. So like most people in that realm, I saw the killers as kind of the end point of the new rock revolution. If you took all the things that were happening in New York and combined it with more of like a British sensibility as far as pop and like this more flamboyant sort of stylization, the killers were what you ended up with. And I think the way they were kind of seen um, by the the guy, you know, indie snobs such as myself is, you know, the strokes were Nirvana. These guys were essentially Bush. Like they were, (laughs) they had, they had this real like photogenic, faux, profound himbo of a front man. Uh, They had a ton of UK press and they were going to have hits. Like that was inevitable. But history would eventually judge them harshly and we'd all look back and have a laugh. And I think that um, that, uh, as much as they were hyped up by the British press and maligned by, you know, people in New York, I think it's worth... Can, can I take a second to reflect on Meet Me in the Bathroom? I think we're going to like talk about this in maybe half of our episodes because it's for people such as ourselves, this is like the totem. Um, it's a book. It's a book about uh, and it's a book about like New York rock revolution from 1996, to 2011. Essentially, uh, you had a bunch of like privileged art school kids in New York arguing about the real soul of New York and the killers were seen as these kind of hacky, almost like kind of country bumpkin types, even though they were from Las Vegas. Because A, you know, they worked as valets and casinos, and B, they actually really wanted to be popular. Right. Um, and it, that was, and even in 2004, that was still, like, people weren't kind of prepared for that. Yeah, and you listen to that record, uh, the first one, which I'm going to, it's going to sound like I say hot fuzz, but it's hot fuss. Um mm-hmm. I think in that book, Meet Me in the Bathroom, there's a line in there from like one of the strokes talking about like why 
you know, they they didn't understand like why Mr. Brightside was such a huge hit. And yeah. they felt like, oh, this is a song. This should have been like a Strokes song. Like, why aren't why aren't our songs being played on the radio? And but you listen to Mr. Brightside, and look, I love the Strokes, but <laughs> I think it's clear from a production standpoint and just a sort of a tunefulness standpoint, like why Mr. Brightside was the radio hit, and like why Hard to Explain mm-hmm. was played on MTV and college radio, but not so much on pop radio. Yeah, you but, can you can you can do Mr. Brightside karaoke. You could belt it out. It's got Eric Roberts in the video, but like a stroke song is much harder to do at karaoke, even though it's easier to sing technically speaking. And I think that's what the killers brought, the sense of theatricality um, and flamboyance um, that obviously people who are still very caught up in indie aesthetics absolutely loathe. Yeah, it, it's funny because, like, I think this perspective that that you're talking about right now, this sort of like knee jerk rejection of them initially that came from mm-hmm. indie snobs at the time, is not something that I find is true of people who are like younger than us. Like when I talk to oh, like no. people who are now in their twenties and maybe even early thirties, it, it, it's similar in a way to like where it was maybe like for people our age, like when Stone Temple Pilots came along, like we just accepted Stone Temple Pilots as being good off the bat. Yeah. We didn't know that it wasn't cool to like them, and I think that was also true of you know, younger millennials who heard the killers, it was just like, well, this is like when they presented themselves. Yeah. And when they presented themselves as, you know, this sort of Springsteen U2 hybrid on Samstown, I think a lot of people of that age group took it at face value. And Mm -hmm. it's always interesting to me with the killers because like when they came along, I loved their first record. Um, And to me, that was the album that I would play before I went out to, to the bars. You know, that was when I was going out to bars all the time and I was single and, it was like a great party record. And the image that they had at that time was that they were like the new Duran Duran, you know, like they were yeah. this sort of like sleazy, fun pop rock band. And then they remade themselves into this more earnest Heartland rock band, which I think sonically worked really well. Like, like, uh, when you're, when you were young, like that is probably my favorite killer song, like from Samstown. Yeah. Um, but like, some of the lyrics and some of the way they presented themselves, I thought was always kind of awkward. I, I always felt like they kind of went down the wrong path by mm. sort of aspiring to being profound rather than just being this sort of sleazy, fun band. And circling back to this new record, Imploding the Mirage, I have to say that one of the things I really love about this record, and I guess this is where I say that Imploding the Mirage is probably my biggest surprise of the year because I did not even expect to listen to this record really. I didn't expect to care about yeah. it. After Wonderful Wonderful, I thought this band is done. I don't need to pay attention to this band. But I decided to give the the promo stream, you know, just sort of a, a cursory listen. And I hadn't even really paid attention to the singles really from the album. Um but like the singles from this record especially I think are easily the best thing the Killers have done. Since Samstown. Now, I know that's such a rock critic thing to say. <laughs> it's like saying since Samstown, but like My Own Soul's Warning and Caution in particular. Um, they just have that classic killer's thing of going to the brink and maybe even going over the line of ridiculousness. Like just being way over the top, very sort of triumphant sounding and bombastic. Um, but making it work. Like those songs are just so rousing and exhilarating. I found myself, you know, just totally getting wrapped up in this record. And, you know, I know you and I have talked about this with killers records. They tend to be pretty front loaded. And I think that's definitely (laughs) true of this album, but the singles on this record just delivered so much for me. 
in a way of, of, of just pure escapism. Like, you know, we're so used to talking about records right now, sort of reflecting the reality of the pandemic. Who wants to hear music that reflects the reality of the pandemic? We live in reality. We know what the reality <laughs> is. I want to escape the reality sometimes. And I think this record for me, there's, there's, there's way better albums that have come out this year, but like the moments on this record, like the moment where Lindsey Buckingham's guitar solo comes in on caution <laughs> is like such a ridiculously fun rock moment. I just got swept up in it. I mean, I think for me, it, it, like the, the, the way the killers have been for the past um, couple years, like I've also not checked for the singles. Like, it was it's one of those like albums where there's like six singles and like the <laughs> uh, the album rollout has like been for six months and um you know i just kind of ignored or whatever but um what happened is i was walking past like 7-eleven a few months ago and i heard this guy just <laughs> listening to caution on the radio i'm like this is this is good it's like this this is the new killer song that people have told me is actually pretty good and when i hear like actually pretty good is similar to like what you said best in samstown you know grain of salt but um i had to kind of check to see like is this like i, I consider the killers be kind of like weezer where they just make enough hits to maintain relevancy for a while and people get like kind of overexcited when it's like not terrible <laughs> right. and, so, and so i i i went on spotify like checked the singles which are that there are many and many remixes and and i'm like wait this is Actually, this is like actually good, and I think your what it does for me is um, calls back not just to like Samstown, the grandiosity of it, but also Hot Fuss. I think that one of the most fun things about the Killers is that you can never quite tell how self-aware they are. Um, Absolutely, like you said, they they push to the brink of ridiculous and then go overboard. I think that they like. I don't want to ascribe too many pretensions to them. Like maybe they this this batch of songs was just the best one they've come up with in a while, or they just had the best people behind them. But um, I do think that uh, what they did here. I mean, the the war on drugs comparisons like are inevitable. Uh, they got the guy on the album. You know, they got Lindsey Buckingham on the album, and I think what the the Killers did here. Um, was play to their strengths, which is that, like, with Samstown, they played on the U2, Bruce Springsteen kind of earnestness bit. But when I was growing up, like, as a, as a less than 10 years old, and I heard, like, Bruce on the radio, I heard, but also, like, Bon Jovi and Journey, um, I think the killers kind of approach all of that as, like, fair game, like, all kind of playing the same game of, like, this small town person just trying to like get out and um, you know, like don't stop believing is, you know, is just as powerful to people as like born in the USA or living on a prayer. Like this is the, this is where the killers operate like this kind of heartland rock, but it was filtered through the fact that they're like from Las Vegas and just like shamelessly commercial. And I think that their ability to be that ridiculous and be this anachronistic kind of rock band, like they're playing for these, you know, like they're the kind of band who was like headlining festivals that got canceled, you know, for like low ticket sales <laughs> or whatever, or like Riot Fest or like all due respect to those, but it's like not like Coachella or one that tries to play itself off as cool. And they're carrying on like that stuff still exists. And, you know, I, I respect that. Um, well, and they're also this, like a pretty big arena band now. Like I, 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 I've talked to a bunch of people that have seen them 
like in 2018 and 2019, which again was in that window where you're, <laughs> where, you know, that was like in the, again, they're on their last legs. Like that's what I thought, like that, that period. But th- they've definitely graduated to that status of like they have enough hits where they don't really need any more hits. I think that they could tour on the strength of like, their hot fuss for the rest of their lives. Pretty I mean, much just that yeah. one record. They can do that, and like, but I think an album like this, it does give them a little extra juice, and I think it probably will maybe bring some younger people into the fold. Perhaps like you'll hear this song, and you'll be curious about some of those older records, and you and you'll want to get into those. I want to go back to something you said earlier about the war on drugs, because yes. I have to say of that, like, you do. yeah, well, <laughs> I think that the influence of the most recent War on Drugs record, A Deeper Understanding, I think is pretty profound on this album. Like if you listen to, again, My Own Soul's Warning, Caution, some of the other songs, I mean, they sound a lot like the War on Drugs. And it should be mentioned that Sean Everett, who was one of the producers of uh, that yes. album, is a key, is, he's a key contributor to Imploding the Mirage, not just as a producer, but he was like co-writing a lot of the songs. I think he actually co-wrote Caution. Um, Adam from the War on Drugs is also on this record. He plays on the song Blowback. Um, <laughs> but I think Sean Everett is is definitely a crucial contributor, as is Jonathan Rado from the band Foxygen. Ah, uh, yes. Who's actually become like a like a pretty great producer. Like he's I, I know he contributed to like to the last uh, I believe he was on the last Father John Misty record. I think he contributed to the Way's Blood record, Titanic Rising. Yeah, he's become all like, those all those L.A. like all those like real studio Maven L.A. type records that sound like ultra classy. Like Rado's going to be involved in it somehow, right? He, and Sean Everett, like those are your guys. So you know, I think those guys. I I give them a lot of credit. I think for how much I like this record. Certainly, if you're going to sound like a deeper understanding, I'm probably already halfway in the tank for your record. Yeah. <laughs> so they're definitely pandering to people like me who really want to hear a War on Drugs record, and we're probably not going to get it until 2021. Um, hopefully, it won't be any longer than that. So it's like, well, the killers, they're going to step in with some War on Drugs methadone uh, with yeah. this record, uh, which I appreciate. So, I mean, I feel like we're both on the same page with this record. You made a, I think, a great comparison to Weezer before. Yeah. I mean, this record probably does benefit from diminished expectations on both of our parts, but <laughs> right. I mean, we both, but we both liked it. Yeah, I, I legit like it. I mean, will I revisit it ever um, after this recording? I couldn't tell you. Um, but you know, if I could say, like, yeah, I would probably see a killer's live show right now i would like to see how this stuff comes off uh i mean are, is it the same as hot fuss where the singles are just like so far beyond the deep cuts that they're not even worth met ma- like can, uh, the the disparity between a killer's single and a and a deep cut is just so vast and i appreciate that as well there's something like almost like ario speedwagon about it you know where they just like okay, we're gonna get four singles. Just fill out the rest, and yeah, I like. I, I think that I could definitely listen. Consider I can see myself running to caution or my own soul's warning. What more can I really ask for out of a Killers album in twenty twenty? You know, exactly. Plus, it's more fun. It's more fun when they're good. I think that's another thing. Like like we things are just more fun when they're they're good. Like when they're boring and just like people are like ragging on them, like that's no fun. It's like really easy to rag on them. Right. 
Exactly. And, you know, I have no expectation that, like, the next Killers record will be good. I suspect it will probably be more like Wonderful Wonderful. But, yeah, it is fun <laughs> to know that, like, hey, every now and then they might produce a song that, like, you want to listen to ten times in a row. You know, you never exactly. know from this band. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the latest from Bright Eyes. And this also has a very, I guess, specific title to the artist. It's called Down in the Weeds, Where the World Once Was. Very wordy mm. title, I feel like. Although I guess compared to some Bright Eyes titles, that's like relatively succinct. Yeah. Uh, and also it's, once again, like you gestures broadly. Oh, wow. Like this one's very prophetic as far as like, I mean, I, this this album title has like been in the works probably since last year. But yeah, it's, it's, it's very much a Bright Eyes are like this Bright Eyes, they are back and exactly how you left them if I'm Wide Awake, It's Morning is the last one you listen to. So. so let's give a little background on Bright Eyes. Of course, this band is best known for Connor Obers, the singer-songwriter in the band. He started making records in the 90s. This band, I think, really started to rise to prominence in 1998 or so. From like 1998 to like 2011, they put out a series of records, very acclaimed. They became one of the signature acts of indie rock in that time. And Connor was joined in the band by multi-instrumentalist Mike Mogus, as well as piano player, trumpet player, and composer Nate Walcott. Uh, they went on hiatus in 2011 after the album The People's Key, which I feel like is probably the most maligned Bright Eyes record. Although Not I, true. I, Not true. It you don't is, think it's... I, I think Digital Ash and the Digital Urn is okay. more... Like, People's Key was probably more ignored than maligned. I actually like the People's Key. I, I enjoyed it at the time when I re, when I revisit it. I I tend to, I mean, I think lyrically it's not his strongest record by a long shot, but I think musically it's like a pretty enjoyable sort of <laughs> pop alternative rock type record. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, the band went in hiatus after that. Connor Oberst, of course, continued to make records on his own. Um, lately, I feel like he's been retreating to the safety of bands like he reunited his punk band Desaparecidos in, in 2015 they put out a record called Paola of course he formed Better Oblivion Community Center with Phoebe Bridgers they put out their record in 2019 and here we are with with Bright Eyes again hmm. um before we talk about the record I'm curious like for you like um you know similar to the Killers of course you know there's a long history that we both have with 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 both of these bands what are your feelings about Bright Eyes? And like, were you clamoring for a Bright Eyes comeback? Uh, yeah, I was. In like, Bright Eyes is just like one of those bands where I feel like I'm like I've written a lot about them, and yet I probably shouldn't be allowed to because they are so uh, intertwined with my sense of self as like a 20 year old. Um, like Connor Oberst and I are about a month apart in age. We're both 40, and so. You know, when Fevers and Mirrors came out and particularly lifted after I graduated college, they were just these endlessly quotable founts of wisdom uh, with this just bombastic, like it, it was like indie rock, but like also like very highly orchestrated, but it didn't sound like they were big budget. Um, it's kind of the way I'm able to see what an act like Mitski or Phoebe Bridgers means to the current generation. Like when Punisher came out, I heard and I'm thinking to myself, Okay, if like Twitter existed in 2002, this is what I would be like with Lifted. I would just be quoting <laughs> it constantly. It would I'd probably get some tattoos. I mean, even in 2002, like I was I was really considering moving to Omaha because Saddle Creek was putting out not just like Bright Eyes, but Cursive, The Faint, 
Um, you know, they also Rilo Kylie. Well, they're from L.A., but nonetheless, that well, they, they put out a Saddle Creek record. They were on Saddle Creek. They, they, they indeed, and it was, uh, and it's, and it's an amazing record. But um, yeah, it's just like how does all this talent exist within like Omaha of all places, as Adam Duritz said, somewhere in Middle America, and it, like the, the community. <laughs> By the way, of it I'm all, sorry, I, I gotta say, be quick. Like, I just want to say that you referenced you two and Counting Crows in this episode, oh, not God, me. Man. I feel yeah. like that. I feel like that's my <laughs> that, that's my bit, and you've done them both. So I'm, I'm very proud. I just, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just had Spider-Man to... versus Spider-Man meme if, here. So if you're um, making an Adam Duritz reference, I have to stop the presses. You know, that's very exciting for me. Anyway, please. But, uh, but yeah, with um, Bright Eyes, uh, I feel like I kind of diverged from the path in 2005. Like, like you said, uh, so much had built up about like Conor O versus like the next Dylan. Like he just had this way of speaking to people his own age, also very photogenic, kind of this infantry kind of thing where he he was also a bit druggy and a bit dangerous. And um, in 2005, he put out I'm Wide Awake It's Morning and Digital Ash and a Digital Urn. But I'm Wide Awake It's Morning uh, came out in 2005. Like, that's where he really kind of did the New Dylan thing. He moved to New York. He, you know, wrote songs about the war and the folk tradition. And it just sounded so phony to me. Not like... I don't think he was trying to put on an act per se, but there was something just like kind of smug and um, just uh, like kind of pretentious about it. And I, I just could not believe my personal revulsion to it. And that was, I would say, compounded by the fact that like everyone just completely ate it up. Yeah, I was going to say, like, this is definitely your most contrarian Bright Eyes opinion, because I feel like a lot of people, they look at mm-hmm. I'm, I'm Wide Awake, It's Morning, not only as the best Bright Eyes record, but as, like, one of the great indie rock records of that time. And I don't Absolutely. know if it's... I don't know if it's necessarily my favorite Bright Eyes record, but I, I think it's a pretty strong album. But So I, I, I appreciate that you take this stance that that album is actually garbage or that it's like this sort of smug catering to, like, a classic rock sensibility or something that he's rejecting what he was doing before. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you, and this is something I posed in my review, a question. Do you look at Bright Eyes as a band or do you look at it as basically like a nom de plume for Connor Oberst? Because I feel like for this record <laughs> that, that, that's come out, this reunion record, if you read the stories, there's been a lot of interviews, uh, a lot of profiles of the band that have come out. And the recurring theme in all of the profiles is that Bright Eyes is a band, and that this new album is their most collaborative effort yet. You know, there's as many interviews with Walcott and Mogus as there is with Oberst. And I know that for me, like, I've always just looked at Bright Eyes as Connor Oberst, in the same way that I look at Bon Iver as Justin Vernon, even though there's obviously other people in that band, and he has crucial collaborators that help him make his record. To me, it's like clearly a reflection of Vernon's point of view and Bon Iver, and it's a, you know, Bright Eyes is you know, Ober's sensibility, his point of view. Yeah. So like, to me, like to have Bright Eyes back, it's an interesting proposition from like sort of a nostalgia for the brand type perspective. But like, I have to say that for me, it was like, well, I don't really, if he's writing as Bright Eyes or it's kind of Ober's, it doesn't really matter to me personally. I'm, I'm just curious, like, how do you feel about that? Well, I think it does matter in the sense that I think Connor Oberst writes very different music for Bright Eyes than he does for his solo albums. Um, and you can, I mean, th- like when you listen to his 2008 solo record or Upside Down Mountain or the Mystic Valley Band stuff or uh, Ruminations or Salutations, like 
The difference between Connor Oberst, the singer-songwriter, and Connor Oberst, the leader of Bright Eyes, is vast. And I think that um, this record really plays to it. Now, is it like, oh, Bright Eyes is a band? Is that like kind of an easy narrative peg for, like, I I swear to God, I've never seen more profiles of an artist for an indie rock record. I've done one of them. It might run today. It might not. But yeah, I think that 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 kind of gives a narrative peg and a sense of excitement. But I think the Bonnie Vare uh, comparison is very accurate in that when you get a Bonnie Vare record, it's going to sound different than like Justin Vernon doing a solo thing. Like the, 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 the fingerprints of Mike Mojis and Nate Walcott, who I also think it's worth mentioning, uh, did keyboard on tour with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, that's a, that's another <laughs> fun thing to mention. This is why Flea's on the record. Um, but oh. I think that, yeah, but I think that like with like Bright Eyes as like bringing it back as a band, it gives this sense of excitement to it that uh, would not at all be given to a Connor Ober solo record because we've seen Connor Ober solo records kind of come and go. Now, would that be different now with like post Phoebe Bridgers, post like Better Oblivion Community Center? Not, to, I, I don't quite know, but I think that this, they picked a really good time like not intentionally perhaps, but to kind of capitalize on this, uh, like Connor Oberst being at his highest stock uh, since uh, I'm wide awake, I would say, or at least Casadega. Yeah, it's interesting with the Better Oblivion Community Center because I feel like, you know, Connor Oberst probably wasn't the biggest star in that band, at least not for like millennial and Zoomer audiences. I feel like Phoebe Bridgers is like, was the main draw for for a lot of people (laughs) in that group. So it's interesting to think of Conrad Oberst in that context, because he is otherwise like one of the most sort of intensely loved singer songwriters of like the last 25 years. I mean, Mm. at least in terms of like the people who love him, you know, I feel like their adoration for him got so intense that it's partly what's prompted him to want to be more in groups now, maybe not so much at the focal point because he's received a lot of scrutiny and there's obviously been some pretty bad fallout for that, uh, for him in, in, in recent years. But to talk about the new record, which again mm-hmm. is called Down in the Weeds Where the World Once Was, um, you know, I've enjoyed some of Ober's recent work, especially the album Ruminations from 2016. I think that is his best album. Super um, underrated, super yeah. overlooked. I think easily for me, my favorite album that he's done in the last decade or so. And it's an interesting contrast between that album and this album, because that album, of course, is this stripped down acoustic record. It's very raw and stripped bare. And this Bright Eyes record is so ornate and so overstuffed. And you really feel the presence of Mogus and Walcott. There's lots Mm -hmm. of instrumental overdubs. There's all these grand orchestral flourishes and from uh, from a production standpoint i think there's like a lot of things about this record that are pretty impressive like it's a pretty great sounding record in a lot of ways but i have to say that like you know i was listening to this album and the killers album like for the past week because i I reviewed them both Hmm. and like the killers album was like candy to me and this album felt like like vegetables you know it felt like work (laughs) because i just feel like all of these songs, there's 14 songs, which I think is at least four too many. Yeah. Um, it's a very long record. And it's like all the songs are like mid-tempo. Again, there's like a lot of stuff going on in the songs. Uh, I feel like it's like a little o- like overdone. It's like overstuffed. Mm. And that's certainly, I think, 
a hallmark of Bright Eyes records, but like what was lacking for me essentially from this album was that sense of tension that you get from a record like Lifted or um, Fevers and Mirrors or even like a record like Casadega, which I think is pretty underrated. That sense that like there's so much going on and there's so much intensity in like what Connor Oberst is doing that you feel like the, the music could collapse in any moment. And that is what drives, I think, a lot of those albums that, again, that tension of like not knowing where songs are going to go or like, is this actually, you know, going to make it to the end of the song or, or is everything just going to fall apart at once? Uh, and there's just like a tremendous energy to those records, even when they slow down and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're not playing fast paced music. This record just felt like a little remote to me mm-hmm. in contrast. Like I, I, I didn't, I had trouble connecting with it as anything other than just like really kind of beautiful, again, ornate production and great instrumental overdubs, but like that central sort of drive at the center was missing for me. So I ultimately just found this record to be pretty dull. You know, yeah. I just was not into it. it. It was just like a lot of bombast to me, yeah. but didn't really deliver the gut punch. Mm-hmm. I, how do you feel about this record? It's kind of the opposite trajectory of the Killers album where, I mean, they're both the same in that they had a very, very long and protracted rollout and many singles. Um, and once Persona Non Grata dropped, uh, you know, I was immediately like on that, defending it. Like, I, I, I almost like had like a personal stake in believing that Bright Eyes were back. And as the singles started to pile up, um, my enthusiasm for the record kind of diminished in like the inverse of what the Killers album did. Now, it's um, I, I think there's an important missing piece, like when you talk about like the difference between ruminations and this record, there was salutations that came out in 2017 where they t- where, where Connor Obers took that very skeletal, almost like scary uh, folk album. And then they got the Felice Brothers and they turned it into a much longer, much slicker and much duller album uh, a year later. And uh, as far as totally. this one. Yeah, and as far as this one goes, um, I think this one is very much designed to make you think, like, just from a cursory listen, like, Bright Eyes are back, man. Like, the like Page Turner's rag, I don't care if it's four minutes long. Like, I, I need that when I listen to a Bright Eyes album. Like, I need the long introduction where like it sounds like a podcast like you listen to the beginning of lifted like every single podcast sounds like that now it's like the guy was 20 years ahead of his time but then you hear like dance and sing the first actual song and when the choir comes in it's like yeah that's my bright eyes right there i like laughed out loud when i first heard it like of just like yes i am getting a real deal bright eyes album in 2020 let's fucking go and same with like mariana trench how it's got that almost like kind of like old school country melody where it's like, have I heard this melody before? Like, did I sing this in elementary school? Like it's, it almost sounds like public domain, but nonetheless, it kind of hits. And then when I revisited the single, like every time you hear a single, it's like, oh yeah, that makes more sense in the context of the record. Like that's a very critical cliche, but once I got towards like the midsection where like one and done popped up where uh, forced convalescence and persona non grata, the singles, it started to really kind of melt together to me. Like you were saying, um, it's one thing for a bright eyes record to sound good. I think that was true of Casadega. I think that was true of people's key. We're both very lush 
ornately arranged albums. And like you said, I'm just waiting for um, like, like, you know, with Millhouse and Simpsons, like, when do we get to the fireworks factory? Like, when does when does Connor <laughs> say something that like really like cuts to the bone? Like, where does he make me feel like uncomfortable in my own skin with where he's going? Like, when does he like and, and, and I know that like the fact that he's 40 years old He's, you know, his brother passed away. You know, he talks about his divorce on the record. Like a lot of like real deep old man stuff has been happening. But I think that in some ways, like, oh, yeah, this is like a Bright Eyes album for like when you turn 40. But it's like I want a Bright Eyes album that like makes being 40 feel like listening to a Bright Eyes album when I'm 20. And I think that what where this record kind of falls short is that with like mid tempo pacing and. Uh, just the kind of lack of like real risk, the sense of stakes, I think I would call it. like for the album talks about the end of the world uh, a lot because that's just what Connor Oberst does regardless of the year. And like I never felt like we were reaching an actual state of apocalypse. And <laughs> right. Um, so, I mean, I think it's just designed in a way to like bring out those their best albums since I'm wide awake. It's morning because like in a way it kind of is. But like that also doesn't say a heck of a lot. It's like when you ever you would like the cliche goes like whenever R.E.M. would make a record that sounded like not that didn't sound like up. It would be like their best album since Automatic for the People or their best album since Octung Baby. It's just like a way of kind of saying uh, all that lesser love experimentation that like made this this catalog so deep and interesting. Like this is like. This is like back, like they're back, man. Return to form. And I think if you don't really scrutinize the album, it can sound that way. And I think that's kind of also played up by the fact that the press blitz kind of makes it (laughs) makes it a lot harder to be scrutinizing of it. I don't know. I mean, I feel like for me, you know, as far as like scrutinizing it, it was just hard for me to get into this album. There's like not like any kind of real killer song that has like a great hook to it. There's not like a lot of melody on this album. I just feel like it's a lot of very long songs that have a lot of things going on in them, but like there's no sort of essential core that is going to draw you in. And like, I just want to, I just want to say something quick too, about what you said about, you know, a bright eyes album that can be relevant at 40 in the way that the bright eyes albums were 20 years ago, like when he was 20, I feel like he made that record with ruminations. I feel like that record was an example of him making an album as a mature adult, you know, he wasn't relying on a lot of the standard tropes that you associate with Bright Eyes. You know, his vocals were different. You know, he didn't have the spoken word interlude. I don't think there's one on that record. No, um, there is and, not. <laughs> instrument, you know, in, in instrumentation-wise, again, it, it was like him playing guitar or piano. But, like, I feel like when you listen to that record, like, when he gives, like, a resigned sigh on that record, it hits with the impact of a scream on Fevers and Mirrors. You know, like, yeah. and, you know, Going to your point about the power of the brand of Bright Eyes, I think you're right. I, I I do think that by calling this a Bright Eyes record, it will generate more excitement, and clearly it has generated more excitement mm-hmm. than if than if it were just a Connor Oberst record. It kind of makes me wish that Ruminations had been billed as a Bright Eyes record because mm-hmm. I feel like maybe people would have paid more attention to that album because I I really do feel like that album. You know, lyrically, I, I think of a song like They All Loved Him Once. Oh, yeah. Um, which is such a gut-wrenching song. And I, to me, like, there's so much less going on in that song than there is on any song on this Bright Eyes record. And yet, 
I'm way more captivated when I hear yeah. that song or any of the other songs from that record. And I also feel like um, there's something going on emotionally on that album that you can't deny. And um, not that I want Conor Orbers to be miserable all the time, because <laughs> yeah. he was clearly pretty miserable when he made that record. I read an interview with um, Mogus where he said that he could have mixed that album in a day, but it took two weeks because Kinder Oberst was so messed up at the time, uh, which makes sense uh, when you hear the record. Um, but I don't know. To me, I feel like the music on this album or like the, again, all the bells and whistles, it's like a distancing effect almost mm. from the album. It's like, whereas there's no distancing on Ruminations, like you're right up front there, you know, mm. you can't miss what's going on with, with, with Oberst or, or with the songs. On this album, I just feel, again, like it feels very remote to me. There's like so much going on, you know, there's, the, you know, there's, there's all these buzz and whistles, there's all these fireworks, but like at the, there's no core for me. Yeah. And that's what makes it hard for me to get into. Yeah. At the end of the day, though, I'm glad it exists. I think that um, I'm glad that like he seems like he's in a better place. And maybe in 2020, 23, maybe we get like a Bright Eyes record where you know that that it, it hits in a similar way you know maybe he but i mean like we also got to talk about like payola the desaparecidos record he in my interview with him like he's like yeah nobody listened to that record it was like this super political uh just kick-ass punk record but it came out at the end of the obama era when like people weren't as really willing to look that stuff in the face and so i mean that, that i think that's kind of where this record disappoints as well it's like connor Oberst is still capable very capable of making gut punch music but i mean look i don't mind some brand stewardship let him like <laughs> let him cook man like i i can't knock it but like will i listen to this record a month from now i don't know it's a very nice record when like my girlfriend and i like drive to the grocery store um which i think this record <laughs> kind, this record kind of talks about that and like look i need those records too so well and i think you know even though we're both pretty lukewarm on this bright eyes record it sounds like we're recommending Bright Eyes records from four or five years ago, or Conor Oberst records, I should say, from four or five yeah. years ago. So like, I think a lot of that's I think a lot of that stuff deserves reevaluation. So yeah, maybe you know, listen to the Bright Eyes record once, but then go back, listen to the Dessa Parasitos record, Paola, and then definitely listen to Ruminations from 20, 2016. Also, justice for Digital Ash and a Digital Urn. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is the part of the episode that we call Recommendation Corner. This is where Ian and I talk about something that we're listening to or reading or, or watching that we think that you all would enjoy. So, Ian, what is your recommendation this week? All right, well, just the nature of this episode sent me back to 2004, and particularly with Older Saddle Creek. Um, I, I, I really don't know if it's possible for people like you know who are younger nowadays to really understand like how... Uh, improbable it was for Saddle Creek to put out so many, I would go as far as say classic records in like a span of, you know, 2000 to 2003. Um, and of course, the top line talent was unbelievable. Rilo Kiley, Cursive, The Faint, Bright Eyes. But I started to revisit the kind of, I don't like the rotation players, like uh, the, like, you know, the sixth man type bands. It really shows how deep this roster was. And I think one of the records that I want to bring up, this one has like really poor Spotify stats, but 
Uh, now it's overhead um, is kind of like this bizarro Athens, Georgia uh, Saddle Creek band in that, you know, the guy like the guy behind it, Annie LeMaster, he's sort of Connor Oberst and Mike Mogus at all in one. Um, he had this record in 2004 called Fallback Open, which um, I think would be like really well received now because it's bed, it's kind of bedroom indie rock, but like with a lot of synthesizers drawing on like New Order. Michael Stipe has a guest vocal and, you know, the lyrics are about uh, like online dating and social profiles and such. And just a really pretty record that like was probably nobody's top 50, but it's one like having lived in Athens, Georgia, I would recommend it's something that would probably sound just as fresh in 2020. And the other uh, Saddle Creek record from that year, I, I feel the need to bring up is, uh, you know, Tim Kasher from Cursive had this side project called The Good Life. Uh, the first record they did, Blackout, really just like mopey, uh, gothy uh, synth, kind of like synth rock. Uh, then he made a, a record called Album of the Year, which is more folky, kind of bright eyes-ish, just beautiful recording. And it's this concept record about a relationship that falls apart because that's the only kind of concept record people ever really make. And um, like the the like the moping of this record and like all like the way it hits is so convincing about like glorifying like going through a breakup that I listened to this record and I'm I, it, it kind of convinced me to break up with my girlfriend for like 5 hours back in 2005. <laughs> like I came home and like we had an argument and I'd listened to that record and like I called her 3 hours later like begging her to like take me back and he did but you know th- I think that's like kind of a testament to a like I guess my emotional state at the time but also just how compelling this album the good life album of the year uh, makes this kind of uh, this kind of romantic turmoil seem. Oh man! So we're recommending that record, but also be <laughs> careful with it. Don't mix it with heartache or booze or alcohol. Anything. <laughs> you, could, you could make a mistake. So my recommendation: I got to go with an extremely Stephen Hyden pick this week and go with the new single that was released by Father John Misty. It's a double-sided single. Songs are called 2S and 2R. You can go on Bandcamp right now and download that single for two bucks um you could probably also stream it i'm assuming on your favorite <laughs> streaming platform these are the first two original songs that the artist otherwise known as josh tillman has released since 2018's god favorite customer and you know it's definitely in the style of that record two lovelorn songs piano ballads i think it's a little more uh stripped down than that album and certainly uh, more so than pure comedy, uh, the, the album before that. There's no real kind of grand string swelling, although there is a modicum of string swelling on these songs. <laughs> Just but, a modicum. And look, he's not reinventing the wheel on these songs. Uh, you're going to expect Father John Misty sounding songs when you put this on, and that's what you're going to get. However, I love Father John Misty sounding mm-hmm. songs, and I think these are both really good songs, very beautiful. It makes me excited to hear what he's going to be doing next. I have to say too, that like 2020 has been a low key, like busy year for father John Misty. Uh, he hasn't hmm. put out any official albums, but like if you go to his Bandcamp page, he put out a really good live record earlier this year. He also put out an EP of Leonard Cohen covers, which again is a very father John Misty type move, but yeah. those songs <laughs> sound great. And they're uh, songs from, from periods of Leonard Cohen that you might not expect. I think there's a couple songs like from, uh, like his early 90s record, The Future. Um, 
I forget what what else is on that record, but that's another very worthwhile release. And you know, my uh, my fear with Father John Misty, and I say this as a journalist, is that he has reached the point where he's not going to be talking to the press anymore. You know, and like big he, loss, big when he, loss. When man. he puts out his next album, uh, you know, because for God's favorite customer, he didn't do any interviews. And that album was acclaimed, but it wasn't didn't get quite the same promotional push as his previous couple records. He may just be at that point in his career where I think he's realized that talking to the press, as much as people like me love it, because I think he's like one of the great interviews that you could hope to get as a journalist. Uh, you know, he's very quotable. Um, but you know, I think he's certainly learned on the pure comedy promotional <laughs> cycle that doing interviews. Uh, were perhaps hurting him more than helping him. Uh, so it seems like he's at that point in his career where he's letting the music speak for him, even though, again, this year we've gotten a series of like pretty great releases from him on his Bandcamp page, but not really hearing a whole lot about it. But again, I have to uh, give props to his latest single. Again, the songs are 2S and 2R. Definitely check that out if you're a fan. All right, so that's two good recommendations from us. Here and uh, we have now reached the end of another episode of IndieCast. So thank you again for listening, and uh, we will be back next week to talk about more indie news and review more albums and keep you abreast of the latest in indie rock. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com/indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. Take Peace. care.